Romans 8, verses 12 through verse 17. This is God's word to us. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses under the title, Gospel-Driven Holiness. Gospel-Driven Holiness. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we study this text. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your text, for your word. We ask that you would now speak to us through it, that you would use me as merely a mouthpiece for your truth, that I would speak your truth, not merely my own ideas, that you would open our hearts to shape us and to fashion us according to your likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, my friend's sister won a scholarship to Princeton University. Imagine that you had a full ride, a, a free ticket to whatever college you want to go to. That would be su pretty sweet, wouldn't it? That, uh, those of you that have some college debt, that would have been pretty sweet. Wouldn't it have been? Well, the problem is, is that once she got in to Princeton, she had to prove her worth. She had to receive all the training, learn the training, benefit from it, and perform in order to stay. And by her second year, she had lost her scholarship and failed out of Princeton University. Now, our problem is that too often that's how we think of holiness. We often think of it this way. We think of the gospel as our free ticket in. And now once we're in, we have to get all the training. We have to pass all of the exams. We have to prove our worth. And we have to perform in order to stay in. And so then what we do is we practically separate the gospel from holiness. It's almost like the gospel or Jesus' kindness to us, Jesus himself, the work of Christ on the cross, gets us onto the team. But if you don't act right, perform right, if you don't play well enough, you'll get kicked off the team. And I believe that that is the wrong view of holiness. What I want to do today is look at this text, and I, and I believe this is what Paul's doing. Paul is connecting the gospel with holiness. What Paul's saying is, is that the gospel and holiness are not two separate things. It's not as if we get into the stadium with the gospel, and then we enjoy the game or perform well by learning how to be holy, but rather the gospel and holiness are intricately connected in the book of Romans. And in all reality, as we study chapter 8. Meaning, we can no more separate holiness from the gospel than we can separate holiness from God himself. Why? It's because the gospel brings us to God. And God is a holy God. 
And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, a.k.a. saved by grace through faith, not your own doing, not of works, so that no one may boast, the gospel brings us to holiness. Gospel-driven holiness. Are you with me? That's our theme today. Now, before we get into the, the text here, let me pause and describe to you a gospel-less pursuit of holiness. And I wonder if any of this rings a bell. Some people think of holiness as for the few and the faithful, not for people like me. I'm just a regular Christian. I'm not like a holy Christian. Some people think of holiness as being sustained by human effort, like the Christian Marines, those who are really strong, and maybe they're born with it, I don't know, or maybe it's because of their upbringing. Some people think of holiness as something that is lured by threat of being kicked out. Meaning, well, let me use an analogy. Anybody know Bobby Knight's Indiana Hoosiers? You get the scholarship to be on the team, and nobody on the team plays because they love basketball anymore once you're on the team. You play, you perform well on the team because you are horrified of Bobby Knight. You're horrified of what he might do to you. You're horrified of getting kicked off the team and the shame that that would bring, right? A lot of people think of holiness in that way. I get on the team, but I'm horrified by the coach. God scares me, and I'm afraid he's going to kick me off the team. And so that's why then Christians are called to pursue holiness. Friends, that's a wrong view of holiness. That's not a Christian view of holiness. Others still think of holiness as a dull life and not very attractive. Nancy DeMoss put it this way. She said that many people think of holiness as a, joy, as a joyless lifestyle based on a lengthy list of rules and regulations. She said many people think of holiness as a monastic experience where, quote, holy people talk in hushed tones and spend many hours a day praying and, and always keeping their nose in the Bible or in a spiritual book. And you think, I don't have time for holiness. She said some people think of holiness as an unattainable ideal that doesn't really exist in any Christian, but that can only exist in heaven. I want us today to take a step back from our assumptions of what holiness is. I want us to take a step back from our assumptions of, of uh, whether or not holiness is something that is or is not connected with the gospel, and I want us to reimagine the holy life according to the scriptures. And that is this, the holy life is, living, is us living the way we were meant to live. If I could use uh, Montreal's bass as an example, if I took Montreal's bass and I played it like a drum, it would ruin the bass. Montreal picks up the bass and plays the bass the way the bass is meant to be played. All right, so the unholy life is living our lives in a way that the Creator did not intend, and ultimately it leads to destruction and death. Whereas the holy life is living our lives, playing these instruments, if you would, in a way that the creator of the instrument meant for it to be played, and it's beautiful music. That's holiness. That's right. That's right. I agree with C.S. Lewis who said this. He said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. He said, even if 10% of the world's population had it, had holiness, he said, would not the whole world be converted and happy before the year's end? My question for today is this, is, is how does the gospel that we've been studying in Romans, how does the gospel lead us to holiness? Or another way we could ask this question is, is, is simply this. Is holiness necessary for every gospel-believing Christian? 
Romans chapter 1 through 5, I won't read it all, but we've been there over the last number of months. Romans 1 through 5 beautifully and in great detail lays out and defines the gospel message. And just in case you're new to Christianity and not even sure what I'm talking about when I say the word gospel, let me give you a brief overview of what Romans has taught us. The gospel begins in chapter 1 with a holy God who is the owner and creator of all things. He is righteousness. It goes on to tell us that we are rebels against this God. It, it culminates where it says, none, there are none who are good, no, not one. It goes on to tell us that there's no amount of good deeds that somebody can do through which they might be saved. That's how depraved we actually are. Therefore, Romans 3.28 said, for we maintain that a person is justified, someone say justified, that's an important word in Romans, that means be made right, a person is justified by faith, apart from works of the law, meaning the good things that God requires of us cannot make you right. The only thing that makes you right that we've discovered in Romans is by is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, it's because God sent his son to be the savior of the world. Jesus, being fully God, not losing any of his deity, the very son of God, God of gods, Lord of lords, came to this earth, lived a life of complete righteousness, died on the cross, in our place as our substitute, 1 Peter 2.24, he, he bore our sins in his own body. He took the judgment for our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He is the second Adam. We are in him. He, we, we, we've died with him. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And he calls us to repent and to believe. Romans 5.9 said, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Jesus. That's the gospel, that we are saved by grace through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. That led then the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 and 7 to start asking some questions about the law. So then shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? If our salvation is disconnected from our actions, from our deeds, then what is the place of good deeds in the believer's life? And he says, certainly not. We should not go on sinning. Why? Because we're dead to our sin, he said. And we're raised to life in Christ. We're no longer in Adam, he says. But we are now in Christ. By the time we get to Romans 8, are you with me so far? What we see in Romans 8 is then the height of the Christian life. What we see in Romans 8 is what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life. And here, in these verses, right in the middle of Romans 8, Paul now connects gospel truth with our holiness. In some ways, he's still answering the question, why do Christians pursue holiness? How does the gospel drive us to a life of holiness? Four words that I want to use to sum up these verses and to answer that question. What is gospel-driven holiness? Four words. Duty, spirit, love, and hope. I'm going to break down each one of those words. Duty, Spirit, love, and hope. Gospel-driven holiness is, let me break it down for you, directed by duty, sustained by the Holy Spirit, lured by love, and shaped by hope. Let's break these down. First, gospel-driven holiness is driven by our duty to God. Delightful duty. Not begrudged conformity. Look at verse 12. He says, so then. Now, so then connects verses 12 through 17 with the verses that came before, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8. In verse 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. That's a big verse that we've been celebrating every week. 
It then connects with verse 4. In order that, no condemnation, in order that we might walk according to righteousness. Meaning God saves for a purpose. His purpose is for us to be holy, to walk in righteousness. Then verse 5 through 11 shows us how. It's because we have the very same spirit that filled Jesus. The spirit of righteousness that is the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, has moved into your life. This is why Christians pursue holiness. So then, verse 12, with that said, going on, he says, Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Meaning, you owe your flesh nothing. Let me use an example to explain this. In the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, how many of you have seen, I'm just curious, a couple of, okay, not a lot of people have seen the movie, it's a good movie. Um, Count of Monte Cristo, I've never read the book, but the movie's good. There's, there's this scene in Count of Monte Cristo when Edmund, who's been locked up in jail for many years, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, he gets out, all right, so if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, he gets out and he swims through like water and he ends up on a beach. And he meets his first problem, pirates. Once he's on the beach, a band of pirates are there. Why are the pirates on the beach? It's because they're going to bury Jacobo alive. Because Jacobo, he's a pirate. He, he, he had stole, stole some things from the captain, and they're going to kill him. But then the captain has an idea. He says, maybe we don't have to, bury, uh, we don't have to just kill Jacobo, because I actually like him. He says, Edmund... You and Jacobo are going to fight, knife fight, uh, to, to death. First one to die loses. And by the way, Jacobo is the best knife fighter the captain has ever seen. What he doesn't know is that all of these years in prison, Edmund has been practicing his own knife skills and sword skills. And so the fight begins, and really quickly, Edmund ends up pinning Jacobo with a knife to his throat. And he's got the right to kill him. He's got the green light to kill him from the captain himself. It's his only survival is to kill Jacobo. He looks at Jacobo and he says, if you, uh, if you want to live, don't, don't, uh, don't even blink. And then with that, he shows Jacobo mercy. He takes the knife and he stabs the knife into the sand right next to Jacobo's head. Jacobo then grabs Edmund by the collar and he says, I swear on, on, on the graves of my relatives, I am your man forever. Here's my point. Great pardon leads to a great pledge. That pledge from Jacobo to Edmund is the beginning of this relationship in which he freely and willingly serves as Edmund's master for the rest of his life. Why? Because great pardon leads to a great pledge. When we have been shown great mercy, we owe the one who's shown us mercy our lives. Notice in the text here in verse 12, it says, uses the word debtor. You, uh, de debtor means that you owe somebody as a master. You do what they require. Uh, you are a debtor, not to your flesh. If you don't like the word debtor, use the word obliged. It could also be the word used in the translation. We are obliged not to our flesh. Or we are not to give our flesh any sense of duty. You have no duty to serve the desires of your flesh is what he's saying. But the flip side is this. Have you ever considered the fact that you are a debtor to God? We sing about it. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus paid it all. What did he pay? Well, sin is infinite treason against God. 
And there's no amount of work that you can do. There's no amount of grief that you can carry. There's no amount of shame that you can bear. There's no amount of tears that you can cry that would ever pay off that debt. It is an infinite debt, meaning a million years in hell has still not paid off the debt that we owe God because of our sin. Man, we can't forget why Romans 8.1 is such a phenomenal verse. This is why when we read there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, we're just like, this is amazing. Because an infinite debt has been paid. He paid it all. Therefore, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Right? So therefore, we owe him all. Another hymn we sing, which communicates this. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. But is it a biblical concept? Well, Luke chapter 7 says that the person who, forgive, uh, who has been forgiven much loves much. If you're forgiven only a little bit, you only love a little bit. What's he saying? He's saying if you're somebody who God has forgiven much, then your debt of love is much. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you're bought at a price. Do not become slaves to man. Romans chapter 2, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Romans chapter 6, having now been set free from sin, you are slaves to God. And now we get to Romans 8, 12, and 13. We're not indebted to the flesh as if our flesh did anything for us. Our debt is to God. And, and I don't mean by this that you owe God like you're going to pay off the cross somehow. That's not what we're talking about. It's not a debt of grief. It's not a debt of punishment. It's not a debt of shame. All of that is paid by Christ on the cross. What is it? It's a debt of love. We, we owe him love, our lives, our service, our sacrifice, all that we are. He owns us. He has bought us. That's what it means. And when we look closely at it, it leads us to obedience. So our holiness, then, is not produced by some kind of begrudged conformity to God, but rather it's delightful duty, like Jacobo looking Edmund in the face and saying, I am your man forever. This is the debt we're talking about. Look at uh, verse 12 and 13. Read verse 12 again. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, what we're learning here is that grace is no license to sin. There is no justification without sanctification. There is no gospel which doesn't lead to holiness. And someone might say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He was saved and justified right before he died. And I would say, yes, he was in a process of sanctification for about five minutes. I mean, why was it that he maintained his faith? Why was it that even after he's converted and confesses his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, two minutes later, why doesn't he join his old comrade in cursing Christ? It's because sanctification has begun. Why is it that when he dies, he dies in that very moment trusting in God? It's because he's being sanctified. Like, justification immediately begins the process of sanctification being made holy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see Jesus. So while we're reminded of our obligation to God, we're given this warning. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, even this warning is God's grace to us. Understand God's warnings, Christian, as something that's given so that we might remain on the path 
toward Jesus. If you're not a Christian, hear his warning as your reality. But it doesn't have to remain your reality. Turn to Christ. But even this for the Christian is God's grace. Let me give you a personal example. So I was thinking about this and told this to some of the guys that I meet with regularly a couple months ago, that even in my own mind, when I'm tempted with sinful desires, when my fantasies don't align with God's God's finest, I, I start thinking about, like, okay, what's the end result? Like, if I pursue some of these fleshly desires, where is this going to take my life? Um, I can't remain a pastor. I can't remain a, a church member. I have to forsake the assembly because I can't come to church every Sunday pursuing my sin. Um, I, I have to start ignoring my friends who are reaching out to me concerned and start blocking their numbers. Like, what's the end result here? I've got to end up leaving Jesus. You see, it's that end result, reality, which keeps me pursuing Christ. Meaning this is not disconnected from our eternal security. It's the means of God's assurance for us. It's the means that God uses to keep us saying, no, I can't leave Jesus. Where else am I going to go? He's all I have. He's, all, he's my life. He's my joy. He's my happiness. Kill sin or sin will kill you. That's, that is the summary of this verse. The warnings are called to call us to kill sin in our life before sin kills you. And it's the reality that sin does kill, that it leads to death, that causes the Christian to persevere in their faith until the end and continue killing sin. Are you with me? Now, does that mean that we're perfect? No. Don't think of holiness as perfection. God is holy, 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 thrice holy, eternally holy, meaning there is no stain of sin within him. Holiness, however, for the Christian doesn't mean perfection. God has actually built into holiness for us. He's built into the godly life confession of sin. We wouldn't confess our sins and fight our sins if we still sinned. So don't think of holiness as perfection, but think of it as, as we're called here, to put to death the deeds of the body. The Christian in Rome would not have been called to put to death the deeds of the body if they were put to death at the time they became a Christian. Are you with me? The very fact that we're called to put to death the deeds of the body means that the deeds of the body still err. They still go astray. And so we're constantly, think of it like this. This morning, I don't know if you saw this, Jess. If you you didn't, I'm going to tell you right now. This morning, my cat had a mouse in his mouth. Did you know that? Um, And uh, I saw it, Haddon and I were there in the living room. The cat had a mouse in his mouth. This cat is amazing, by the way. I hate him. (laughs) But he is a tool. All right? He is just, he is merely, when you see that cat in our house, don't think of us as cat people. We look at that cat like a wrench, all right, like a screwdriver. He's merely a tool. Why? It's because of these Baltimore mice. Look, it's not a one-time kill. You see what I'm saying? We have to continually be killing these Baltimore mice. This is our pursuit of holiness, church. It's not like a one-time kill, put to death the deeds of the body, and therefore, past tense, I put to death the deeds of the body. No! As long as we're in these fleshly bodies, it's like Baltimore mice. The sin, desires keep coming. And the body, the deeds of the body, meaning that what that says is that our body is the instrument through which the flesh lives out its desires. And so the flesh is continually, to, continually rising up. We are continually putting these deeds to death. That's sanctification. I'll quote Martin Luther. He said, I'm always a sinner, always forgiven, 
always repentant. That's what it looks like to kill sin. We never stop, stop repenting. We never stop turning to Jesus. We wake up every morning a sinner forgiven by God's grace with a fresh resolve, God, help me today to serve you and not the flesh. Gospel-driven holiness is driven by, first, duty to God. Second word is spirit. And I'm going to go quicker with these final three words. Secondly, holiness is sustained by the Spirit. You know, I heard of a swimmer who was severely dehydrated. Think about that. A swimmer, surrounded by water, in water, who ends up being severely dehydrated. What this swimmer had to learn is that being in the water or around the water doesn't hydrate him. He's got to have the water inside of him. And how many Christians need to learn that being around the Spirit of God is not the same thing as having the Spirit of God in you. You've got some Christians who've grown up in Christian homes, and they go to churches, and they've been around the Holy Spirit of God their whole lives, Spirit-filled Christians, and they know the way of swimming, they know how to operate in those circles, but they are dehydrated because they've never had the Spirit of God in them. Look at verse 13. Let's zoom in again on this verse. He says, but if... Somebody say, by the Spirit, Spirit. you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Imagine if we deleted that phrase, by the Spirit. What would it say? But if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh, how different that reads. You see, gospel-driven sanctification says, you are not alone in this fight. Yeah, yeah you don't have it in you, but you're not alone. Yeah, it's, it's not your nature. It's not your own spirit. You can't muster it, but you're not alone. You see, the problem with pick yourselves up by the bootstraps religion is that we're trying to get out of the city of destruction in a car with no gas. The Spirit is the fuel which leads us to life everlasting, to holiness, to godliness. The problem with pick yourselves up by the bootstraps religion is that you can learn how to, in a class, clean up the outside of the cup. You can take some training on, on how to do that, but you can't figure out how to clean up the inside of the cup. Only the Spirit can change us on the inside How does he do so? Well, first of all, we kill sin through the Spirit, all right? By the Spirit, he says. How does he do it? How does the Spirit help us? It's through giving us new desires. It's through changing our hearts. It's the work of regeneration. It's through filling us and aligning us with the the desires of God himself. This doesn't mean that sanctification always feels natural. There might be times where you feel like holiness is just pure obligation, where you really want to sin, and you're like, you tell yourself, I'm not allowed to do this. And praise God for that. Because even that ability and that decision is God's grace to you through the Holy Spirit, giving you the, de- the, the, the desire for holiness more than you desire sin. Friend, if you're struggling with sin, some kind of ongoing, reoccurring sin, pray that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would renew your desires. That He would renew your mind. That He would give you the desires for godliness more than you desire the flesh. This is gospel-driven sanctification, and this is our life. Now, some of you can think of deeds of the flesh 
which you've committed in the past, which you wish you could go back and put to death. Think about it. There are some deeds that you have committed that if you could turn back time, you would say this, this deed here and that deed there, this deed here, I would put these to death. But listen, God doesn't give us by His Spirit the ability to go back in time. What He does give us the ability to do is learn from our sin. And we trust God, even with those moments of failure. What he does give you the ability to do is to think about your life today. What does it look like today to practice the mortification of sin? Putting to death the deeds of the body. Third, love. Duty, spirit, love. We are Lord by love in our gospel-driven sanctification. I read a story of a dog named uh, Tyson. He was a boxer. And his owner took Tyson to the vet for the very first time. When the owner came to pick up Tyson, he saw his dog jump out of the arms of the vet and run up the hallway toward the owner, and he, Tyson leaped over a five-foot wall into the arms of his master. The vet was surprised, and the vet was like, wow, how did you train your dog to do that? And he said, I didn't. Well, how did he do it? It's because when you want to be near your master, you will do anything you can to get near your master, including leaping a five-foot wall. Here's the point. Some Christians believe that they just need more training. Why is it that I'm struggling in my, in my, in my Christian walk? I need like a, a self-help course on this. I need a self-help book on this. I need to figure out the secret in how to, uh, how to love my spouse or how to uh, uh, control my sexual, uh, uh, sexual life or how to um, get rid of my greed or whatever the how-to might be for you. What we need to grow in is not more how-tos, but we need to grow in our love for God. Now, gospel-driven sanctification, meaning our sanctification, our holiness, is driven by the gospel. How does that speak to us in the love department? He goes on. Look at verse 14. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So first he starts out with this logical statement on adoption. This is assurance language. He says, if you have the Spirit of God in you, like you, you already know, you, you, you're filled with the Spirit, you can rest assured that you are a son of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now Paul is connecting our sin with fear. Sin doesn't lead us to life but rather sin is slavery that leads us to fear. Think about it. Prior to conversion, you would have been terrified to stand before God. We don't have the spirit of fear because there is no fear in love. And so why then do we want to fall back into the spirit of slavery, which leads to fear? Not because God has moved away from us, but because we've moved away from God. Not because God has abandoned us, but because we are acting as if we have abandoned God. And so now we're living in this fearful kind of relationship. He's saying, you don't want to live in fear, do you? God hasn't given you the spirit of fear. What has he given us? He goes on. But, verse 15, you have the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption as sons. By whom, he's referring here to the Holy Spirit, so through the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a warm and affectionate family name for dad in the ancient Jewish culture and actually still today. 
It's not merely a childish term. Adults would call their father Abba, but it's very much so a familiar, familial term. What it says is respect, love, honor. Now, it does communicate God's own love for us, meaning that we have been adopted into God's family. And God allows us to call him Abba. But it says even more of that. It says something of you. Notice it says, by whom, the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. What he's saying is that the Spirit in us positions us toward God in such a way that we cry out to Him with love and affection. Like a dog hopping over a five-foot wall to be into the, in the arms of his master. The Spirit in us cries out to God with love. We have love for God. We have affection with God. Radical assurance of God's love goes on in verse 16, experienced through our love. He says, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is assurance language. How do we know that we are God's children? First, it's logical. If you have the spirit, then you're his son. But secondly, it's actually emotional. There's an emotional element to our assurance. Meaning we love God. We love him. He's Abba. We're like kids that fall down and get hurt and we screw up and we fail and we look to him with love and affection and we run to him. That's because of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does in us. And then the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. This subjective kind of emotional assurance. How do you know that you're a Christian? Answer, the Spirit testifies to my spirit, that I am a child of God. One of the first fruits of conversion is our assurance. And our assurance leads us to holiness. While holiness is never an option for the Christian, our assurance of our salvation is never in jeopardy. Because we are adopted into the family of God. Somebody put it this way. There is no sanctification without sanctifi- uh, there is no justification without sanctification. And I want to add to that. There is no sanctification without the Spirit. There is no Spirit that does not bring assurance. There is no assurance without love. There is no love without adoption. And there is no adoption without a great inheritance. And that leads me to my last and final point on how the gospel drives us to holiness. Number four, hope. We have real hope. Look at verse 17. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Now, notice the shift from sons to children. This, in, this includes daughters. I, 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 heard a, uh, I hear the women crying out while I'm talking about your sons. Wait a second. What about the daughters? Why all this sons language? Is he only adopting sons? One theologian put it this way, and I think he's right. He says, the fact that that." Paul, in Romans, and really all through the New Testament, calls a mixed-gendered group sons of God, actually has first-century importance as it relates to the status of women. Who were the recipients of inheritance in the first century? Sons. Sons. The sons were the heirs. And what he's saying is he's looking at the church, men and women, And he's saying, you all are sons. Meaning, women are equally inheritors of God's stuff as much as any man is. All of God's children are brought together as his 
heirs. What does it mean to be an heir? It means to receive everything the Father owns. Church, what does God own? He owns everything. And so we're, we're given the promise here that we have an incredible hope. Even though this world is often filled with suffering, there is glorification that is to come. And we have a hope that keeps us pressing forward. Do you know why many people fall into sin? It's because they lack hope. It's called escapism. It's like when you get frustrated and you're angry and things aren't going right and you just say, screw it, I'm going to enjoy the flesh for a little bit. That's escapism. That's a lack of hope. A friend of mine who was a Baltimore City teacher a couple years ago, he told me that he had one student who literally said, I smoke weed every day because I have nothing to look forward to in life. That's no hope. No hope. And so we just escape with whatever the flesh can give us. We don't need to escape. We don't need to fall into despair. Yes, suffering, suffering will come, we're told here. In this world, there will be trials and tribulation. How was Jesus treated in this world? Was Jesus accepted by this world? No, he was rejected. Jesus suffered. He, he, he suffered in his life every day, denying sin, living a life of holiness. There's an element of suffering in our holiness. It is denial of the flesh. You feel it, saints. Suffering here very well can just simply refer and apply to you seeking to live a holy life. But beyond the suffering. Look, Jesus suffered also because the world rejected him and hung him on a cross. And if that's how the world treated Jesus, how do you think the world is going to treat the people of Jesus? With rejection, with persecution, a lack of acceptance? In this world, there will be suffering, but through the suffering, at the end of it is what? Glorification. So we could put it like this. There is no justification without sanctification. There's no sanctification without adoption. There's no adoption without an inheritance. There is no inheritance without future glorification. But there's no future glorification without first going through suffering. Hold on. Hold on. That's the message of hope right here. For these Roman Christians, within 10 years, Nero would be in power and Paul would be decapitated. Many of the original readers were probably hunted down and destroyed, killed by the Roman government. God in his sovereignty knew what was coming to these Roman Christians. But through their suffering is going to be glorification. Don't give up now. Hold on. You see, our hope of what's to come shapes our holiness today because we have something to look forward to. Can I close with this? I was taking a plane from out west back home to Maryland. And once I got on the plane early in the morning, it should have only been a three or four hour flight. I was excited to get home. I hadn't seen my wife in a week. I hadn't seen my kids. I, was, I don't even like traveling that much, at least by myself. I was longing to get home. And would you believe that they rerouted the flight to Miami? Now, I don't know if you know your geography. But if you think of coming west to Maryland, Miami is the opposite direction. It's actually Fort Lauderdale, not Miami. Could have been worse, I guess. Could have been the Keys. I get it. <laughs> they rerouted me to Fort Lauderdale, all right? What made this worse is I had this big burly dude sitting next to me. Look, this is the way, I always, when I, I fly southwest, and I always find the smallest person to sit next to, all right? So that way I can kind of spread out, you know? So if there's like a little old lady, she's going to be, I'm going to sit right next to her because she's not going to crowd my space. Well, I sat next to this guy who had like more hair on his upper arm than I have on my head, all right? And, and he was just shoving into me the entire time. And I'm like literally up against the window like this, all right, flying from out west all the way down to Fort Lauderdale. And then when we get there, 
we discover the runway is like shut down and we're going to be sitting for at least three hours on the plane. And if we get off, we can't get back on. And they said, if you want to get off, we can put you up in Fort Lauderdale for the night. Da 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 da. We can help you out. And I'm thinking, first of all, I, I gotta be, I gotta be honest. I'm thinking the beach, warm weather, Fort Lauderdale. But, but I wanted to be home. And if I got off the plane, I'm no longer heading home. Now, would you believe that? Mr. Burley didn't get off either. So for three hours, I'm sitting like this, waiting. Finally, the plane. I was on this plane for about eight hours, nine hours, something like that, nine hours total. What was it that kept me on the plane? It was because I knew my final destination. I knew where my home was. Look, while Fort Lauderdale for a night seemed appealing, that wasn't home. Saints, stay on the plane. The, the world is going to offer things to you that look so appealing, that are, uh, offer immediate gratification. In this world, there's often is times of suffering and trials and tribulation, and sometimes the other options seem so much better, but you know where home is. And so I sat there on the plane for nine hours with joy and anticipation because I was heading home. And that's how we live our Christian life, saints. This is, this is our sanctification. This is our gospel driven holiness because of the gospel i am always a sinner always forgiven always repentant always killing sin always pursuing holiness always assured always adopted always an heir and always hopeful because at the other end of our suffering is glory are you with me so i just want to stay with christ how does the gospel lead us to holiness I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and I want to hop any wall that I've got to hop to be with him and to be near him. Pursue Christ. That is holiness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would use it to shape us, to speak to us, convict us, encourage us, assure us, grow us as your saints. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.